Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. The myth of Jews killing Christian children emerged in 1144 CE with the death of a boy named William in Norwich, England. Over the course of several centuries, this myth gained traction and became firmly rooted throughout medieval and early modern Europe. In Blood Libel, on the trail of an anti-Semitic myth, Magda Tedder traces the history of this myth and analyzes how accusations of ritual murder have followed Jews from the 12th century to the contemporary period. Magda Tedder is Professor of History and Schivler Chair in Judaic Studies at Fordham University. Hi, Magda, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. So first off, I'm wondering if you could describe the origins of this project. What made you want to research the history of ritual murder and blood libel accusations against Jews? So this, uh, this project actually came out uh, a little bit out of my previous book, uh, in which I did not address this issue. And my editor asked me specifically a question, why not? Because historically... Um, the subject of my previous book on the desecration of the host or the Eucharistic wafer uh, was often tied together with the uh, anti-Jewish accusations, uh, sometimes called ritual murder, sometimes called blood libel. But uh, I have some qualms about these terms, which we can talk about in a moment. And uh, she posed this question and asked me why I wasn't uh, addressing it. Uh, and there was a reason because in Poland, uh, which my 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 previous book dealt with, in the 16th and 17th century, these these accusations were disconnected um, uh, to a certain extent, um, but that uh, put a question in my in my mind. So I started looking at this, and initially, the book was to be uh, much smaller. Uh, much more circumscribed. Um, uh, it. Uh, I initially thought I was going to uh, look at the Polish context um, uh, where the cases were happening in the seventeenth um, and eighteenth century, and then the sources put me on the European tour on the trail. So the first one, I realized that uh, that. I need to do a comparative project between Poland and the Italian context because they were both um, at least nominally uh, Catholic contexts uh, where the Catholic Church played an important role, but the outcomes were quite different. The um, In Italy, Jews, except for the 15th century, um, were really not accused, and when they were um at the same time as these things were happening in Eastern Europe, in Poland, uh, they were generally acquitted. Uh, so I thought I was going to investigate the questions of the um, of the of the Catholic Church and responses. And in fact, at the very beginning, uh, the project, as I began to think about it and began to apply for grants, uh, the title was "The Pope's Dilemma." 
because I thought it was going to be more of a story of the Catholic Church and the institution of the Catholic Church and its relationship with the uh, what I call the sort of Italian metropole and the um, and the Polish provinces. But then, um, then the uh, as I said, the following the trail of the sources, the references um, uh, took me on the European tour. And the book now is uh, based on uh, archival sources from, I think, eight countries and uh, sources in 10 languages. So it really became a much, much larger, much thicker, much broader book. So why don't we um, talk about terminology? You mentioned that you had some qualms about certain term, certain terms, so ritual murder, blood libel, etc. So could you elaborate on that? Yes. So um, so these terms uh, are uh, referring to an accusation that emerged in the medieval period against Jews, saying that Jews killed Christian children, uh, and. It emerged in England in the 12th century, the story emerged in England in the 12th century as a narrative of um, Jews killing a Christian boy, usually, uh, to reenact the crucifixion of Jesus. And that um, modern historians, and I have to say that I have to find out in which kind of context it uh, emerges historiographically, but in the modern times, this... Um, that phenomenon of this accusation was called uh, ritual murder. That is, that Jews were supposedly killing ritually uh, Christian children. And uh, this is not a terminology that is used in the historical uh, So it is a modern term. The problem with it is that it implies some kind of a ritual. Jews had a ritual uh, of killing. And that is, of, of course, uh, terribly uh, problematic uh, and inaccurate and false and libelous. So I would prefer, even though I use this term in, in the book, because historically um, that term has been used on occasions um, uh, when I discuss this, uh, this uh, medieval, early medieval rendition of these, of these accusations, uh, I prefer, and that's on the book's website, where, which has maps and images, I prefer the term murder libel because it is also a libel, just as the blood libel. So blood libel uh, emerges out of that initial story of uh, accusing Jews of killing Christian boys to reenact uh, the passion of Christ over Easter, Passover season, which we are in right now, um, but in the 13th century, a blood motif was was added, and it was added uh, to Jews were not just uh, to say that Jews were not just killing in the reenactment of the Passion, but to obtain Christian blood. So that's the distinction uh, between the the murder versus the uh, murder for blood, um, and that these are the different technical terms. Okay, thank you for that. Um, you alluded to this already just in your previous answer, but I'm wondering if we could elaborate um, on on the origins of this, of the myth of Jews killing Christian children. Um, where did this come from and how did it, um, and how did it gain traction? So it, uh, as I mentioned, it emerges, um, the first story 
emerges in England and um, it emerges in Norwich um, after a death of a boy named William in 1144. But what is important thing that although William did die or his body was found in 1144, that story doesn't emerge and doesn't become anti-Jewish stories until decades later. So, in fact, some scholars argue that maybe the the story didn't originate in England. Maybe it um, came from the continent, and we 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 don't uh, really know the origins. What we do know is that the first narrative uh, of that story that uh, that told of the of the uh, crucifixion of William emerged decades later, probably. Um, Probably in the 70s, 1170s, maybe even as late as 1180. Um, And that was created by a monk who arrived uh, in the 50s, 1150s, to the town of Norwich and heard the story and then began to write this narrative, hoping to establish a cult. So what is happening in the 12th century, the story, and the story sounds very familiar. And, and one of the uh, prominent scholars, medievalists, uh, Gavin Langmore, argued that this is the invention of the, of the narrative and uh, of, the, of the accusation that becomes uh, the driver of the uh, so-called ritual murder uh, accusations, which he calls ritual cannibalism. I mean, I mean ritual crucifixion and then um, the blood libel he calls the ritual cannibalism because again it's a, it's rather uh, problematic because it implies as if something like that happened mm-hmm. but um uh but the story sounds familiar and it seems to be repeated it's not because the story became known in fact uh, this narrative written by thomas of monmouth that monk who arrived in the 1150s in norwich and then uh, started writing the narrative and perhaps finished it in 1170s, 1180s. Um, sounds familiar and seems like it was repeated is because it is very deeply indebted to Easter liturgy of Jesus's passion. And it is no coincidence that this happens at the time because this is exactly the time when Christians began to shift their... Um, worship of Jesus as as God the, in the glory to worship of Jesus as the suffering God. When we begin to see in Western Europe, and um, I gather it's also on, on the uh, English Isle, the uh, shift to uh, the suffering, the passion of Christ. And of course, when you begin to pay attention to that, uh, the uh, figure of the Jews reemerges as actors, right? When you only focus on the glory of God, of Jesus as God, um, Jews are not playing such a prominent part. But when you focus on the drama of the passion, then Jews do play a role in that story. And for Christians by that time, this was uh, the, the the story of, uh, of blaming Jews for the death of Jesus, so this uh, converges, and and what we see in that narrative is very much tracks that uh, that story of passion uh, of Jesus. Uh, William tracks the story of passion of Jesus, uh, and what else is happening at the time 
because um, Thomas uh, wants to establish and justify the shrine devoted to William and the town of Norwich, and this is a a big deal. When you have a shrine, you get pilgrims. Uh, there is uh, there is religious prestige. There is economic uh, prestige that comes with these uh, with these shrines. So um, when he is writing this narrative, which I believe was written to justify the shrine. He writes it at the time when there were active debates over um, over who is a saint and how a shrine can be and how a cult can be authorized. So we do see um, in 1175, Pope Alexander III uh, issues a bull, a paper bull, outlining that the only author, uh, only Rome can authorize the worship of saints. And there are certain conditions that need to be met. And and that narrative reads, le- reads really like a, a justification for that, uh, for that new cult. But what is interesting is it disappears. That is, the, co- the, the shrine is, uh, exists, but the narrative kind of disappears, doesn't stick. And one of the arguments, I would say, one of the reasons for that is that there is no template yet. This story has not yet spread. This is something new. This is a, a new kind of conflation of passion and of uh, Jesus's passion and that new accusation of uh, against Jews, a new narrative of Jews uh, against Jews. Um, uh, but it doesn't stick. It uh, the the narrative by Thomas of Monmouth becomes really important by his for historians because because it's the, uh, discovered in the nineteenth century and begins to play a, a key role in uh, in the uh, narratives of anti-Semitism and history of anti-Semitism. But at the time, it really disappears as a narrative. The story doesn't the knowledge of this supposed incidents doesn't disappear, but it enters into chronicles, monastic chronicles, as really one-liners. In the city of Norwich, um, you know, a a boy, Christian boy, was crucified by Jews, or Jews crucified a Christian boy named William in the city of Norwich. That's all we have in the monastic chronicles, and that one line enters also the continental chronicles through this circle of the same monastic order that Thomas of Monmouth was part of. Um, again, not yet a full-blown narrative. Um, what the narrative will become uh, will be developed much more popularly later on, um, and the uh, blood motif, on the other hand becomes a continental story it ent- enters the continent and uh, and uh, it, it develops in the 13th century also in a moment where a new kind of shift in christian piety and devotion and doctrine uh, 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 takes place in the 13th century we have the the beginning of the 13th century we have the official recognition of the doctrine of transubstantiation. That is the doctrine that during the Mass, um, the, when the priest takes the communion wafer and the, uh, and the communion wine and pronounces, this is my body, this is the blood, my blood, 
um, the actual the wafer and the wine transform into the actual body and blood um, of Jesus. Um, this was um, a belief that circulated before, but the 13th century is the first um, official recognition of this dogma, and we begin to see the church's investment in promotion of the uh, of the uh, of the dogma. Uh, so that blood motif added to the wafer, that is, there's blood in the wafer, um, coincides with the introduction of the blood motif that now Jews over Passover are killing a Christian child uh, in order to obtain blood to add to their Passover matzah, to their Passover bread, which again, if you if you... Um, pay attention to the fact that Christians didn't go every week to uh, Mass and didn't um, take communion every week as it might happen uh, this, uh, in, in the 20th century or the 21st century. They only did it once a year over Easter. Uh, and Jews produced matzah over Passover. So when these two uh, combined, the, there was this that Jews are essentially manufacturing the wafer, but they don't believe, so they can't produce the real blood of Christ. So they add the blood of uh, a child into Christian child into that blood. So that coincides again. Both accusations, both origins, emerge at very specific moments in Catholic um, piety. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, Simon of Trent, who's, um, as you outline in your book, is a significant player. Um, first, can you um, explain who Simon of Trent is and why this particular child's death represented um, sort of what you argue, a turning point in the history of blood libel? Yes. Uh, so uh, the story of, of Simon of Trent, he was a boy whose body was found uh, over the... Um, uh, Easter weekend in uh, the town of Trent in 1475, uh, under a house and a sort of canal that uh, that flew under the house of a Jewish family. Um, so this is an Easter story. Easter Passover at that point, uh, Passover and Easter coincided uh, as well as this year um, uh, of uh, 1475. So until um, until the uh, the body of Simon of Trent was found, until fourteen seventy five, there were um, occasional accusations and stories um, like that uh, a- across Europe, in um, on the continent and in England. Some as just stories, purely uh, we know them from literature or literary references. Some actually do have uh, some legal official materials, um, uh, sources, uh, such as the accusation in Fulda in 536, um, the accusation in Valrea in Provence in 1247, uh, which the Pope um, uh, responded to and condemned such accusations against Jews, uh, and, and several others. But until... 1475, these were really dots. These were really sort of disconnected dots on the European map. Uh, these were local stories. Um, if they were produ- if they produced any, um, 
whether visual or uh, any veneration like uh, William of Norwich or several others, or Link, uh, Hugh, Little Hugh of Lincoln or um, Werner of Bachrock, for instance, if there are even attempts at shrine, they're very localized. So um, people uh, only in the locale and the region might know about these stories or about these shrines. With Simon of Trent, um, we have a co complex convergence of factors. Uh, one is uh, the, the story emerges uh, just a couple of decades uh, after the invention of the printing press, uh, which was mid-15th mid, uh, century. Uh, and we're just beginning to see the power of the, me the new medium. Um, the second one is the uh, political and, um, and personal commitment of the bishop, Prince Bishop of Trent, um, at, uh, who was, it was a, a town, at the, now it's in northern Italy, in Trentino Adige, but it was a sort of culturally and politically a borderland between the uh, Holy Roman Empire in the north and the Germanic kind of uh, cultural and political context and the Italian um, culturally and politically Italian peninsula. Uh, the town was culturally also um, divided between Italians and Germans, and this story is really in the German part of town. The, the Jewish community is clearly a German-speaking Jewish community, although some of the members know also Italian. Uh, the bishop is a, a, a German uh, bishop. He studied in Italy, but, uh, but he comes from the, uh, across the Alps, from the Germanic uh, areas. And um, he uh, also has uh, an axe to grind against the Pope because uh, the Pope um, did not want him to be the Bishop of Trent. Uh, the Pope wanted an Italian to be the Bishop of Trent. Uh, so there was a delay in the recognition of this uh, Johannes Hinderbach, the Bishop of Trent's uh, position um, in, uh, in Trent. So, uh, so there is a convergence on, of factors. He was also a very avid reader and uh, a very sophisticated, uh, clearly, politician. And what he does, he immediately recognized the, uh, the potential power of having a shrine in Trento, in Trent. Um, and this is a jubilee year, which adds to that convergence of factors uh, that uh, brings in a lot of pilgrims walking, going to Rome for the jubilee. And uh, if they could stop in Trent, um, that would be a, a boon to town. Uh, so the when the body of Simon is found, uh, and actually it is found uh, by Jews uh, under their house, and they report it back to the prince bishop that the body is found, uh, the prince bishop immediately recognizes the opportunity. And uh, his physician, who does the autopsy um, and is also clearly a talented writer, immediately begins to write a narrative where he blames Jews 
for the killing of Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus of Simon, uh, for the killing of Simon. And he um, he writes the narrative um, just a few days after the body is discovered. Um, before the trial even begins, before Jews are formally accused, uh, the narrative is already set. Um, and the shrine is already uh, created. So uh, Simon's body is found on March 24th. Uh, the first miracles are already reported on March 30th. So the events are moving really fast and the narrative is set uh, on Mar uh, on April 4th. That's the first text we have from that period. Uh, and the interrogations don't start till, till much later in a a April, so a couple of days after that. Um, so the bishop immediately recognizes the, the power of it, and he immediately invests in the media, in the media technology, and in paying artists to create images, uh, paintings, uh, prints. He pays poets to create it, to pen poems about it. Uh, he pays uh, writers like this, uh, this one who creates the narrative. And he invests in publishing the, these and spreading the news of this new... Uh, new, he called them, Saint or Beatus or Be Be uh, uh, Blessed Simon uh, across the region to bring the um, uh, the pilgrims into town. Um, the uh, Rome is very unhappy with it, um, and they send a uh, a papal envoy to investigate the matters. It's a serious issue if the cult is uh, un. Uh, unrecognized and illegal and potentially um, fraudulent. Uh, and this uh, exacerbates that tension between Rome and Trent uh, again. Uh, so Simon of Trent, the story of Simon of Trent is pivotal in a sense that it uses the new technology. It spreads far and wide thanks to the printing press and the new visualization of it, which allows the dissemination of the story. This is the first time when Christians don't just hear about these stories, but can actually picture these stories. This is the first time where they can visualize it because woodcuts of this uh, of this story uh, are spread far and wide. Um, it is um, also the first time when we have really um, detailed documentation, uh, partly because the bishop wanted de to de document these. Uh, these events and the trial uh, so that he can pursue the recognition of the cult of Simon. And finally, with time, uh, although the, the Pope uh, does object to the rise of the cult and, and explicitly prohibits the worship and veneration of Simon, um, in the next... Um, Century after, for the the cult, the cult will be what I called in the book a rogue cult. But in the 16th century, eventually, the facts on the ground that the bishop creates through art, through uh, the shrine, uh, play a role in the in leading to the recognition of the of the of the cult of Simon in Trent, and that recognition leads to the withdrawal of papal and church, church protection of Jews against the accusation. So if in the medieval period we see that the popes, in fact, uh, repeatedly um, 
prohibit such accusation and warn against such accusations from 1247 uh, to the last one in 1540. After the, the cult of Simon of Trent is recognized in the 1580s as a legitimate cult, the papacy at some level is unable to explicitly condemn such accusations against Jews. So although the medieval, we can trace the accusations to the medieval period, the medieval period is also marked by explicit protection of Jews by the Catholic Church. In the following Simon, that protection is withdrawn. Um, I'm wondering if we could talk about gender for a moment. Um, the vast majority, if not all, um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the children who were believed to have been murdered by Jews were little boys. Um, in your research, did you come across any records of Christian girls being murdered by Jews? And if not, what do you make of the gendered nature of these um, quote-unquote murders? Yes, so uh, there is a definite, and the majority are, are, you're right, are boys. And one of the reasons is obviously it's that uh, a connection with the parallel of of uh, of Jesus, right? Jesus was a male. So therefore, if they were uh, supposedly reenacting the crucifixion, that would have been a crucifixion of a, of a male. Uh, however, this is not the only, there are women or, or women, maybe not, uh, but girls at that point who are also um, uh, thought to have been killed or claimed to have been killed by Jews by their accusers. And in fact, the, the accusation that prompts the papal reaction in 1247 is an accusation that comes out of a death of a girl in southern France. Uh, so when you when you and then they uh, when you have that uh, religious motif connected to the passion of Christ, you uh, most most uh, explicitly will have boys. And Simon was in fact Simon of Trent was compared to Christ uh, to the point that that the, um, the the papal envoy thought it was idolatrous that he would be com, com, uh, uh, com, compared to Christ. So when you have that religious motif connecting the child victims, supposedly child victims, to Jesus, they are males. But when you have um, the uh, blood motif that is all about uh, the use of blood, whether for Passover or whether for medicinal purposes, the gender doesn't play such a role. By the time this accusation shifts to Poland in the 17th, 18th centuries, that uh, gender and even age to some extent doesn't make much of a, of a difference because the, uh, by that time, the uh, motif of crucifixion and the reenactment and connection with the Passion of Christ is lost. Uh, what remains and what is uh, of interest to the accusers in Poland is the uh, enmi supposed enmity of Jews or hatred of, uh, by Jews of Christians and Christ um, uh, and, and, and their cruelty and not the religious supposedly ritual reenactment of, of the Passion. Um, I'm wondering if you could explain to us the process, because to some folks who are listening, it, it seems like a perplexing 
phenomenon to find the body of a of a dead child and then from there Jews are tried and then in, in many cases executed for this this quote unquote crime um and oftentimes as you um trace in the book the evidence that folks sort of claim to to show that Jews killed this child actually didn't didn't match with what, how the body was found. It just it's, so it's it's a bit perplexing. Could you maybe trace for us how how this process worked and how yeah how Jews were tried, how they were convicted, and and what and what happened in that in that process? Uh, yeah. So uh, the 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 it is it is you're right. It is interesting. One of the things that uh, that is uh, that is something that we need to remember that. There were a lot of dead children in the pre-modern era. There, uh, many of the in many of the stories, they are found drowned, for instance. And then remember, this is uh, if it is often, not always, often a, a Passover Easter stories, a story in especially uh, northern Eastern Europe. March, April is when. Me- uh, ice melts uh, when children who may have been playing on the ice in January and February now may be drowning. Right, so you have that one, that seasonal aspect of it. Uh, second, just as now, then too, uh, there was child abuse uh, and children were beaten and and often killed. So there are a lot of bodies. There's also infanticide. Uh, by women uh, who um, who give birth to illegitimate children, but that doesn't play a, a role in this because these are just newborns. So that doesn't play a role in that narrative. Um, so what is important to know, although it seems like it's such an overwhelming story of accusations, and when you look at the maps that uh, that I provide on in the book and then on the website, it's you know there are over a hundred uh, examples. It seems like like it's a lot. Um, they the accusations against Jews did not happen in every single town, town and every single time a dead child was, was found. Uh, there had to be a convergence of political and social uh, if, uh, events and factors. And to give you an example, I mean, to return to Simon of Trent, when Simon disappears, it is initially thought that he simply drowned in the canal, that he got lost. He was uh, 26 months old. He was just under three years old. Um, that he probably walked away and uh, and he, you know, he drowned. There's no indication at the very beginning that it immediately beca- is used against Jews. It is only used later on when people who are invested in such uh, such accusations um, might then use it. An example, a very uh, interesting example, I found in um, in Poland in the 17th century, where the testimonies actually preserve the mechanism of uh, of the accusation. So there is a woman who finds uh, the body of her son drowned in sort of a marsh. And um, she takes the body, she cleans it, and the townspeople come in and initially think that she may have drowned or killed her her son. There is no sign of malfeasance. There are no bruises. There are no wounds on the body. There's uh, no sign that, that, that 
there was violence involved in any whichever way. She seeks permission from town to get the, the body buried. She comes back home and she finds the body now mutilated in her home. So clearly somebody did it. And the, uh, some of the men, townspeople who come to her and said, uh, uh, you must have murdered the child. And she says, no, it was intact. What, you know, what happened? And said, we won't tell on you, tell on the Jews that they did it. And she actually is tortured excessively in town. And she repeatedly says Jews didn't do it. Uh, Jews are innocent. And that there are some members of the, uh, of the town who are trying to push the story. In the end, Jews are not accused. Jews are not uh, harmed. She, in, she however, dies um, uh, out of the wounds she suffered through torture. But this is a very interesting example of of uh, of you can see the efforts, the sort of political, economic, social efforts of trying to take advantage of somebody's tragedy, somebody's child uh, dying, uh, to um, either take on Jews economically or uh, for religious reasons or political reasons. Um, and this clearly didn't happen in all the towns that uh, that that a child was was found, and we see it in. in Trent in this very famous case, but we see it also in smaller, less uh, less important or less known, perhaps, uh, um, situations and examples. Um, how did Jews respond to blood libel accusations? So um, uh, the first inkling of the uh, what the responses, community responses may have been uh, come from the uh, the Middle Ages, and uh, they come uh, from uh, literary sources um, uh, that that talk about this uh, supposed uh, massacre accusation in Blois in France uh, in eleven seventies, eleven eighty. Again, this is uh, the dates are unclear uh, because we don't have any. Um, official records. It all comes from uh, literary records. Um, so the, the the texts are probably later. The texts are probably 13th century. And if we look at it from the 13th century, we see that they mobilize. They mobilize to reach authorities to prevent these uh, essentially trials to proceed and accusation to proceed in, in some um, serious way. So we see it in then reaching after the full that 1235 1236 uh, case we reach uh, we see them reach the emperor uh, with the blois material that is literary that i believe was from later centuries um, they seem to be reaching uh, a king in france but but again this is this is problematic so but but reaching authorities reaching the highest possible christian authorities 1247 Valrean for Provence, we see them reach the Pope who is at the time uh, nearby. Um, so that, that's the first uh, the first step is to to reach those most powerful Christian authorities who can prevent these uh, accusations from going forward. In the early modern period, so um, you know 15th through, uh, through 18th century, uh, we also begin to see literary responses 
the uh, literary responses come in a form of prayers for the Jews who were killed as a result of the accusations and the narratives they provide and uh, and the, the either pra prayers or later on songs and poems retelling these stories they focus on the martyrdom of the Jews who were killed and provide um, a, a sort of a narrative of God, of being faithful to God, of uh, not confessing to the, these accusations, of not um, not uh, accusing anybody in the in the uh, uh, in the community, uh, and 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 dying a a sort of martyr's death for protecting both the community and not converting. Uh, during the process of torture and then the conviction, often Jew, Jew, the accused Jews were offered uh, an opportunity to convert to Christianity uh, in order either to avoid the cruel death at the stake or, um, or to be let off uh, free, perhaps. And, uh, and the songs were to assure them uh, the Jews, the readers, that if they stay faithful and die martyrs' death as Jews, that God will will be um, with them. So that's one aspect of the responses, and that is marked by uh, that. That response uh, comes from mostly Ashkenazi Jews in German lands and in Eastern Europe. Um, the Sephardic Jews, uh, who uh, hail from the uh, Iberian Peninsula. Um, who at that point are do not live in the Iberian Peninsula, but may have experienced um, inquisition, uh, torture uh, in the earlier period, and that memory would have persisted. Um, they their literary responses are different. Their literary responses are much more polemical, uh, providing. Um, Arguments uh, uh, show emphasizing the absurdity of the accusation. Uh, they, in fact, um, uh, in these stories, unlike the Ashkenazi stories in which the Jews never confess and die martyrs' death, in the Sephardic stories, the Jews almost always confess to uh, to uh, these these crimes. But at the end of those stories. What is usually revealed is that the actual perpetrators are revealed, and it shows that Jews confess under torture and uh, to, to crimes they did not commit, and therefore torture and the whole process is a sham and is unjust. So we have very, very clear cultural differences in the literary production and the literary responses to the accusations. The Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, and those who are actually accused do either um, uh, sort of provide the narratives of martyrdom and always mobilize politically to prevent uh, and to sort of blunt the blow of these accusations in, uh, in real life. Could you perhaps elaborate on the root of the differences between these two um, different responses and was there could you were you able to measure whether or not they were effective oh effectiveness that's a that's a tough question um i'll t i can talk about the different uh cultural differences and the different i the materials that i've examined the cultural differences regional differences are um 
characteristic of not just Jewish responses, but also sort of Christian attitudes towards these uh, accusations and the different regional outcomes. But in terms of the um, the uh, Jewish uh, responses, the Ashkenazi literary so, so let me backtrack a little bit. The mobilization of resources to prevent either the accusations from getting into courts and uh, or and and harming Jews, or to blunting if the accusations and the court courts uh, procedures already started to blunting uh, blunting the the accusations and the the um, outcomes. Uh, is a of course an understood uh, practical response. So you mobilize the community, you mobilize political connections, you try to reach anybody in power who can help. So that's what we see on the ground. That's what we see in archival records and sort of funding of it, in diplomatic um, uh, evidence and so on and so forth. And that is done by Jews who are usually affected on the ground by these accusations. The literary responses uh, have to do more with the cultural background and the cultural traditions of each uh, each group. So the Ashkenazi Jews have a longer tradition of uh, narratives of martyrs and martyrology that go back to the um, to the Crusade era, to the Crusade chronicles, and to the Crusade uh, liturgy, post Crusade liturgy during. During Crusades, there were a lot of Jews who were killed by Christians, and also Jews who, in order not to uh, be forced to convert to Christianity, who chose death over um, over conversion. And those um, stories were preserved in liturgy. They were preserved in chronicles. They were cr- preserved in poetry uh, and in, in in memory. So that what I call a memory trail. Of, uh, of Jewish martyrdom and the sort of the responses and the faithfulness to God starts in the uh, medieval period and is carried through the Ashkenazi Northern European Jewish community. Sephardic Jews do not have that that uh, tradition and that literary uh, uh, the literally um, uh, sorry I. Just I lost it. Um, the literary uh, tr- uh, tradition. So there um, are most um, connected, and they most draw from um, from polemic with uh, uh, non-Jewish writings. They are much more engaged with the debates and the literature um, that is in that uh, in in Spain and then later on beyond they are much more in uh, engaged with the debates legal debates and uh, about effectiveness of torture because they are uh, they are uh, they are touched by the uses of torture and uh, and um, extortion of uh, of confessions uh, during the uh, period of the Inquisition um, in the uh, from the 14, late 1400s in the 1600s uh, after the expulsion and the Converso Jews certainly are experiencing that. So they are much more attuned to these questions, to the questions of polemic and to the questions of polemic against the um, against the use of torture that is happening at that time. 
they are also not directly uh, affected by the accusation. By directly meaning that their uh, their members are not accused of killing um, uh, Christian children because they settle in areas and where these accusations do not take place. So they do not have to deal with the questions of of martyrs, martyrdom and assuring the community that God is still with them despite the suffering they are facing. But what the accusations do take place and why, where the polemical aspect of that uh, comes into play is that um, these stories do not disappear from the um, Christian imagination in the areas where the Jews settle. So when Jews want to, the Sephardic Jews want to settle, for instance, in the uh, 17th century in England, return to England from which they had been expelled in 1290, there are voices among the English um, politicians, intellectuals against allowing Jews to settle that recall uh, some of the English stories, like that of William of Norwich, like that of the little Hugh of Lincoln, and bring them up and say, "How can we? Um, how can we allow these people to come in when they, uh, you know, when they are known to have killed Christian children?" So the polemical aspect of it, and the apologetic aspect of it, and defensive aspect of it, uh, written in often non-Jewish languages, not on, on languages that were accessible to non-Jewish readers. Um, is part of that strategy to uh, to defend Jews against the, the slander, but in order to uh, gain access and permission to settle in the areas uh, which are not affected by the real accusations, but in which the memory of those accusations still persists. How does the myth of Jews killing Christian children continue to surface in the contemporary period? That's a terrific question. And uh, when I initially um, began to write this book, as I said, it was much more circumscribed and, and, and I thought it was just going to be a you know typical academic historical study. Uh, and even as it grew and I followed these trails uh, across the continent, uh, I still thought it was going to be a, a pretty much a historical uh, study. And as I as I was writing, and certainly by the time I uh, the book was in, actually in production, it became um, very clear that uh, that these uh, myths are very much alive. That is, I was aware of the uses of the imagery, for instance, of Jews killing children uh, in the Middle East, but um, in, in in an anti-Israeli propaganda. But this didn't seem relevant at all uh, for what I was doing. What became clear is some of the characters in my book, like Little Hugh of Lincoln, like Simon of Trent, are still very much alive, especially in the white supremacist uh, circles. So as the book was in production, uh, it didn't go yet into print, uh, into printing, but uh, but it was already in in the process. Uh, 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 the shooting of the Poe Synagogue near San Diego happened exactly in 
you know, Passover, not Passover, but in April 2019, last year. And uh, when the manifesto of the shooter was discovered uh, online, uh, he referred to Simon of Trent and other uh, Christian children, he said, killed by Jews uh, as one of the motivators for his actions for killing Jews in California. So it became clear that this is not just a historical story, but that is a story uh, that continues. And the reason why white supremacists have embraced these stories is because these pre-modern tales and the pre-modern trials that entered historical record were then um, uh, embraced and propagated as facts by the Nazis in beginning from 1934, the very notorious issue of Der Sturmer from May 1934, in which um, uh, Der Sturmer published some 20 pages worth of images and recounting of the stories uh, that were footnoted using the very books that I was examining uh, for my book. I realized that that early modern paper trail that was created was resurfaced and resurrected for modern contemporary anti-Semitic purposes. And because um, the uh, neo-Nazis, white supremacists are drawn to the Nazi material, they draw on that material and they uh, use the examples found in these materials. So there, Simon of Trent with the uh, now iconic, iconic thanks to Nazis image from the Nuremberg Chronicle from 1493 becomes a major actor and a major player. We talked before um, about how for many of these children, a shrine site would be um, developed. And I'm just curious, are these shrines uh, still in existence or were, were they dismantled? Um. So there are material remains of some of of of, of all, if not most, if mo- I think all of the all of the shrine. There are no active um, shrines or no active uh, sites of veneration. Uh, but uh, the this memory of those shrines persists. And sometimes it is commemorated as a place um, that led to the suffering of the Jewish community. And because of the material remains of those shrines and uh, the historical memory in these places, um, they become magnets of white supremacist groups. So uh, the place in Lincoln in England, uh, the... um, Trento and Simon of Trent, and also um, the shrine, the former shrine in Judenstein in near Innsbruck in Austria, tend to attract, tend to serve as magnets of the white supremacist uh, circles. And again, they emerge in very specific moments. So these shri- these um, cults, the three examples that I've given uh, you. 
uh, were all abolished. Um, they were abolished after the war, World War II, uh, in the 50s in England, and then 1965 uh, in uh, Trento, and then in 1989 in, in near Innsbruck. Uh, so they are no longer recognized and no longer active shrines. That said, uh, there are material remains. And um, the, um, the abolition of the of those shrines um, in some way serves as, for the white supremacists, for the neo-Nazis, serves as an affirmation uh, of those, uh, of the validity of the accusations, because they perceive it all as a conspiracy, um, a Jewish conspiracy and Jewish influence politics on, on, on religion as well. So that's why they pers- persist. So we're approaching the end of our interview, but I have a couple of more questions for you. Um, one is, how, what can we learn from the history of ritual murder and blood accusations against Jews um, in the sense of like what 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 can this what can this tradition this myth teach us about the role of myths rumors and in perhaps contemporary parlance fake news more broadly what lessons can we learn about this from this particular anti-semitic myth so i i think there are a couple of lessons that can be learned um one big one that comes out uh i think uh, i hope comes out of the book is that the that leadership matters that is public pronouncements public condemnation uh public um labeling as something as false inaccurate uh wrong is a key crucially important it may not always be effective and not everybody will accept it some might even use it to rally their troops uh behind from the other side but it does give moral guidance um, for those who want to act, but who may not have the courage to say so. But if they have an, an authority, a moral or political um, or religious authority explicitly stating and giving them the language and the, the backup, uh, that is something of key importance silences and even actions behind the scenes uh, are not effective so the the, the I, I i mentioned earlier that in 1540 there was the, la- the last time the pope explicitly condemned such accusations and be- uh, since then there was no official uh, official explicit condemnation that is not to say that the church authorities didn't act and didn't try to help jews behind the scenes this was not effective. Those, uh, the silence from Rome was read as a recognition of the validity of these accusations. So leadership matters, public uh, condemnations, public statements matter, even if sometimes they feel futile because they are not effective and are drawn out in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the sea of other, uh, other noises and pronouncements. Uh, the other thing is that... Um, what one reads matters. Um, we see it in the different outcomes and the different uh, results and the attitudes towards Jews and these accusations uh, in different regions. And one of the reasons is that there was a different uh, set of available knowledge 
about Jews, about their rituals, about what they do, about what they believe in. When you have uh, only one kind of source of knowledge when, that is monopolized, that is, uh, says on, tells only one, one um, narrative, that becomes the narrative and often self-fulfilling narrative. And that was the case in this uh, surge of accusations against Jews in Eastern Europe, where knowledge about them was limited pretty much to anti-Jewish works. Uh, it was much more complicated in Italy and, and German lands, for instance. So what we read matters. Our diet of, of uh, what we read matters. And we see it today as well in what we consume uh, from media. And there have been few um, research studies and other uh, social scientists' analysis showing that people, uh, the, the, the source of news matters in, uh, in social and political attitudes and what people consider as true and as, as a fact. And the other thing that I would say, and that will be the last point, that is important to un understand not just that certain ideas and myths exist, but how they are used politically, how uh, that, that they there there's no linearity and inevitability uh, of the uses of these stories and myths and stereotypes. Uh, they are sometimes dormant, dormant for centuries. They are sometimes dormant for decades. They are sometimes dormant in regions, um, you know, for a very long time, and that they are then being utilized for political purposes and to be attuned to why certain ideas resurface and when is another lesson that I think we could draw from the study of this persistent myth. So to conclude our interview today, I'm wondering if you could tell us what uh, what you're working on now. So the uh, the book uh, led me to think about the uh, and actually the if I finish if I had finished the book when I thought I had I would finish it, uh, but it lasted a little longer as we all know sometimes projects uh, take longer. If I had finished it before the Trump era, it may have been a different book. Uh, it certainly would not have a discussion of the confirmation bias, which became such a public discussion after 2016 elections. Uh, and it certainly threw light onto the uh, the pre-modern uh, pre um, phenomena that I was seeing in my historical so sources. Uh, so the book that I'm working on is actually on the relation of not just uh, present sort of movements and cultural developments, but on of, uh, of the influence of specific historical events on the way we um, produce history. And the, the example that I will give you is that I noticed as I was doing research on this very, you know, broad but limited topic that the modern studies or modern editions uh, of uh, pre-modern medieval or early modern documents related to blood libels came in years or soon after the modern specific cases of accusations in in Damascus in 1840, in Tisa Eslar in 1880s, in um, Kiev uh, in 1911-1913. Uh, so it's and, and in 1935, the um, 
the publication of the English translation of the of a paper of a church um, report against blood accusations came as a response to the, the Sturmer uh, issue of 1934. So this very stark um, uh, example of specific events, specific years. Uh, leading scholars to study pre-modern events and produce pre-modern evidence in the modern times led me to think about, uh, let me ask questions about how much of the history is actually influenced by our present. Well, thank you so much, Magda, for spending some time with us today to speak about um, your book. Um, it was a pleasure reading and talking to you about your work. And um, the book Blood Libel on the Trail of an Anti-Semitic Myth is out now. Thanks again, Magda. Thanks for having me, Lindsay.